On the show this morning, Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer to talk the hot political stories of the week. Then Salmon Woes with BC Green Party MLA Adam Olson will finish off the show on the wildfire front with Forest Minister Doug Donaldson. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics. Always look forward to Fridays, uh, and especially because I get to talk to these two gentlemen. Pleasure to be joined online by Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Welcome both. Good morning. Okay, guys, let's jump right into this. We've only got uh, the first half hour on the show today. Uh, Vaughn, you've been off on holidays. You haven't had a chance to sound off on these ICBC changes. Uh, you came right back and fired off a couple of columns, including one on the uh, BCUC filing, uh, part one. We're going to get a part two in December. Uh, but an interesting aspect of that filing is it looks like the NDP, uh, you know, it's a case of uh, look at the new government, just like the old one, as the NDP government pulls a page of the liberal playbook on this thing, Vaughn. Very much. In opposition, the NDP supported the idea that the Utilities Commission, the regulator, uh, would have independent scrutiny of both BC Hydro and ICBC. This is the first real test of that. They have instead told, basically told the BCUC to approve this massive makeover. It's the most ambitious changes in auto insurance in, since ICBC was created. This massive makeover runs 400 pages of auto insurance. They've told them you've got six weeks to approve it, and they've pretty much told them you've got to approve it. They've they've put so many constraints on what the commission can do that the commission is pretty much stuck with approving it all in six weeks. Uh, somebody I know, uh, Keith and I know, who's watched the uh, way governments deal with the regulator for years says about the only thing the government didn't do by cabinet order was tell the commission whether to use the black rubber stamp or the blue rubber stamp. Yeah. Uh, Keith, what do you think? I mean, it looks like we're just a hair away from exempting the BCUC altogether. Yeah. Now, uh, the BCUC pushed back on the on the uh, NDP's demand for a, a, a rate freeze on BC hydro rates. But in this case, no, Vaughn's right. This is uh, this is going to be a rubber stamp exercise. And you get the impression, certainly talking to more people I talk to over here, senior people, uh, that this was basically the result of a bunch of people at ICBC who have been sitting there for years wanting to have an overhaul of the system. And they saw the opportunity uh, with, a, with a serious uh, financial crisis at ICBC to pounce and to push this overhaul. Uh, David Eby did not write all this, this 400-page submission. This was written by I, I, ICBC officials that have been sitting on this for years, have been wanting to make some big-time changes, and it's going to completely overhaul our auto insurance system. I don't think people really got their heads around how big a change this is, and it's going to impact our rates uh, eventually because uh, there's going to be a rate increase next April, and, the, and that part is lost in the whole debate here, Shane, is that there's been this focus on, oh, we're going to penalize bad drivers and reward good drivers. Well, to a point, that's true. But the big thing is our rates are going up next April. They're going to go up the following April as well. And those rate increases combined will eliminate any savings or positive impact that come from these changes. It's going to eat up the savings or the or any deductions that you get uh, as a result of these changes. And it's a fact of life that, you know, the cost of living increases every year, and, and the, the NDP government can't hide that. They're trying to hide that fact that our rates are going to uh, 
increased significantly, even with these changes and trying to focus uh, everybody's attention on rewarding uh, good drivers and punishing bad drivers, but there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a real case of the devils in the details. Important, by the way, contextually to say that uh, we don't know what the rate increase was going to be. The BCUC filing, as I mentioned, is sort of a first phase. Uh, the rate increase itself will be in the second phase in December. Uh, Vaughn, there's a lot of stuff at play here, a lot of finite details in this ICBC makeover. Uh, from what you saw of the 400 pages filed with the BCUC, what blanks were filled in on your end? What did we learn? Oh, look, there. you're, you're right. There's so much here that it is difficult to tell people just how far-reaching this is because everybody's insurance is different. But one of the ones that jumped out at me in the reading is they've said that in future you're going to have to list everyone who drives your car. Uh, so you can't, you, you can insure your car, you insure your vehicle, uh, and, but you're going to have to list everyone who drives and they're going to in many cases, apply an extra premium because of the risk of the other driver, second or third or fourth driver. And the other thing is, if you don't do that, and the person who you didn't list has an accident, you're going to pay 15 times what you would have had to pay if you'd listed them. Hmm. Now, ICBC provided the example here. The example they gave is of Bill whose na- lets his neighbor sue, drive the car to go pick up groceries and run errands from time to time. Uh, ICBC says if he listed sue, he would face an extra premium of $135. That's ICBC's number, and that's a 12% increase in Bill's premium just there. Hmm. If he doesn't do that, he's gonna, and she has an accident, he's going to pay $2,000 in penalties. Now, that's just one example of many, many, many in this. And I think that's one reason, too, Shane, why um, it would have been a good thing if the government had handed this new framework to the Utilities Commission and said, give this thing really the once-over. Make ICBC justify this stuff publicly. They've, They've separated out the rate increase that is needed to fix the problem they inherited from the Liberals. That is going to go to the Commission in December, and that probably will be approved and needs to be approved. There's no need to ramrod this total makeover of the auto insurance system through to fix the problem they inherited from the Liberals. And given that ICPC is not going to be right about everything it's always wanted to do, I think independent scrutiny would be a good thing. And the other thing, Shane, is uh, I agree with Vaughn, but what's also happening here is ICBC is being shifted into a private insurance model. Mm. Uh, For years, the public insurance uh, utility basically shielded uh, ratepayers from a lot of things that you go through in private insurance. And one of those is like listing drivers uh, who drive your vehicle. The other thing is, for years, ICBC did not discriminate on the base of age. Those days are about to come to an end because new drivers, and they don't call them young drivers, they call them new drivers, are going to pay a hefty premium uh, to get into the insurance game. And most new drivers are young drivers, and that's going to be a big penalty uh, for, uh, for, for young people, which have been exempted from uh, age discrimination uh, for, since the inception of ICBC. Young drivers in other provinces have always paid more than young drivers in British Columbia. And again, those days are about to end. And that's another, another shift, another indication that ICBC is really moving into more of a private insurance model rather than a public insurance model. And you have to wonder if that's the reason why the BC Liberals' response to this, which I think was a little uh, premature, was to raise the specter of privatizing ICBC.
Yeah. Uh, I want to play you guys a quick clip from Todd Stone. Uh, the refrain is not new. The fact uh, that the Liberals have kind of said they've been playing with a bit of the numbers at ICBC uh, when they announced uh, was it the $1.6 billion in the hole or $1.3. I can't remember the exact number off the 1. top. 1.3. Thank you. Uh, and Todd Stone went into a little bit more detail than I've heard him say before. I'll just play the clip for our listeners and I'll get you guys to respond to it here. Canvassed it uh, uh, for for hours and hours over several days uh, in the spring session this year. You know, how does a finance minister sign off on on uh, 220 million and then 364 million and then 1.3 billion uh, over a, a four month period? Like how how does that happen? Now, you know, we, we you dig really deep and 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 it, and it looks like there may have been an unprecedented reassessment of um, uh, of forecasted claims losses for for large loss claims. Uh, about 700 files reassessed uh, from an average. Uh, cost of about 30,000 per to 450,000 per. Um, that was very, very odd. Uh, that that uh, I'd, never, I'd certainly never seen that uh, uh, that kind of a reassessment take place under you know the four years that I was there. And talking to lots of folks who've been at ICBC for decades, they'd never seen that either. Keith, what do you think? Well, we, we've been, it's interesting. We've been waiting to see the final numbers for ICBC's book signed off by the Auditor General. That happens when the public accounts are, are tabled. We, for years, with, with the exception of last year after changing government, the public accounts are tabled in July. And we're, here we are, uh, now drifting into late August, and we don't have the public accounts yet, which means we don't have the final sign-off on what ICBC's bottom line is. There has been a suspicion from day one that that $1.3 billion figure that David Eby uh, uh, released and said it was a fiscal dump, dumpster fire, that there was some sort of torquing going on with that, that particular figure. I asked Eby at the, at when he made his announcement about the ICBC changes whether he's sticking with that number, and he says he is. Uh, but uh, we're going to wait to see what the Auditor General has to say about this. But, I mean, Todd Stone has to bear re responsibility for some of this. He was the minister mm -hmm. responsible for ICBC yep. last year. But um, it is interesting how that, as Stone points out, how that deficit could go from a relatively small number, a little more than, a little under $300 million, to suddenly $1.3 billion in a very short time. And ICBC hasn't explained that. David Eby hasn't explained that. And perhaps public accounts will give us a glimpse into exactly how that happened. Yeah, uh, so either the Liberals were covering something up as the inference, or perhaps the NDP are playing with the figures, Vaughn. Well, I have to say, given the mess that the B.C. Liberals left at ICBC, uh, based on what we've seen so far, and based on what the Liberals knew and didn't tell us before the election, it does take a certain amount of gall for the, for the former minister uh, to be coming out and accusing the new Democrats of not coming clean. Uh, the, the Liberals uh, have a, share a lot of the asset ICBC, and I, and I don't think they probably want to shut up about this and let the Auditor General deal with it. <laughs> All right, uh, we do have a lot to get into today, so why don't we take a quick commercial break, and we'll dive into a couple other topics on the other side as we talk to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry. 
Uh, guys, the wildfire situation, uh, not nearly as bad so far as last year's historic season, but it's definitely not good. Uh, a lot of things going on there. Uh, the town of Kimberley put on evacuation alert late last night, so uh, things definitely brewing. And that means a lot more money is being thrown at fighting the flames out there. Uh, and the wildfire budget is going to go up. Uh, Keith, what does that mean potentially for the uh, provincial uh, sort of finances that are t- t- kind of teetering on in the edge of a knife right now? Well, it's interesting, Shane, that uh, there's no real budget for fighting wildfires. There's a, there's sort of a placeholder line item put in a budget every year, which is a figure that represents a 10-year rolling average of how much is spent previously. The problem for the government now is that it looks increasingly likely that the wildfire budget is going to be very high uh, every year. So what was budgeted this year was $65 million, and already we're at, uh, last I checked a couple days ago, we were about $210 million, probably getting to $250 million. Uh, so far this year, as of last year, at the same time last year, we were at 280. Uh, so we're, we're not quite at a pace to eclipse last year's record. I don't think we're going to get there. But last year, more than $600 million of tax dollars was spent fighting, fighting wildfires. We'll probably hit at least $400 million before this is through. So keep in mind now, again, there's no real budget, but uh, technically, that would be over budget by $325 million. Carol James has built into her budget, and every finance minister is going to have to do this, uh, a huge contingency fund as well as a forecast allowance. But if that wildfire budget, uh, wildfire costs start really escalating, that will basically wipe out the contingency fund, which means no more money left for any other emergencies or unaccounted or unforeseen expenses. The other sort of uh, anvil weighing on this budget chain is the housing market is dried up, it's it's slowed, and that means a reduction in property transfer taxes when it, when they were expected to increase. So it's a double whammy for Carol James. Huge wildfire costs that, again, the contingency fund is there, but probably a big drop down in property transfer taxes. You take the two combined and that will put the budget, I think, perilously close to being unbalanced. I don't think we're going to tip into a deficit, but it's going to be close because of wildfires in the housing market. Vaughn? Yeah, Shane, I spent my two weeks of holiday in southern Oregon, where they have a terrible forest forest fire problem as well. Of course, right on the border with northern California, which is having a record bad season. Discussion in both places, though, which I think is relevant to British Columbia, is that this may well be the new normal. That we just have to we, we we have to stop talking about the worst uh, forest fire season and just talk about a typical one, and I think that does rain raise some public policy concerns. You can't prevent stupidity, you can't prevent dry forests, and you can't prevent lightning strikes. You can put yourself in a position to contain the damage more quickly and to prevent the spread from the forests into this interface zone around which people live. And I think going forward, we may well in British Columbia should be looking at spending more up front to build up the resources and rapid response and as well to spend more than we do now to reduce the fire hazard in the interface zone. It it costs about $1,000, my recollection, a hectare to clean up the forest floor. And, you know, if we're going to be spending seven or $800 million a year fighting forest fires, 
what if we were spending three or four hundred million dollars a year cleaning up the forest to reduce the risk? Yeah, definitely need to do something. Uh, what this is the fourth worst wildfire season on record. So four of the eleven last worst fire seasons on record since 1950 have taken place over the last four or five years or so. So something's got to give there. Uh, changing topics on the Trans Mountain Pipeline front, the NEB has approved uh, construction to start, and uh, the Lower Mainland, where I think we're all agreed, uh, where this can be the focal point of sort of the resistance of the pipeline effort. Uh, seeing the Camp Cloud takedown in Burnaby there, uh, Keith. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, the, the takedown occurred, and I, I don't think the reaction was as inflammatory and as emotional as it might have been a year ago. And I have to wonder whether or not some of the air is getting out, taken out of the balloon of the protests over the pipeline. Uh, there's still bound to be protests. There's going to be more civil disobedience. But, you know, Gene Swanson, as a prominent anti-poverty activist, was uh, jailed for contempt, sentenced to seven days in jail. Uh, and I have to wonder, when, the, when everybody, the penny sort of drops on all these protesters, when there's a real price to pay now, it's not just, you know, the symbolic uh, taking away for the TV cameras and uh, you wave your, your protest sign, but, in fact, you're having to pay a fine of, of hundreds of dollars, if not thousands of dollars, and serving jail time and potentially having a criminal record, whether that will dissuade people from being the big, uh, being part of this big protest, as many people thought it was going to be for so long, particularly when, so far, nothing's been achieved because of the protests. Work is beginning on the pipeline. The only thing that's going to stop this pipeline, I think, are the court challenges. We're still waiting for the Federal Court of Appeal to come in any day now on this First Nations uh, 14 different uh, court challenges bundled into one, challenging the Federal Cabinet's approval of, uh, of the pipeline at the, at the beginning. Uh, that's going to stop the pipeline potentially, but I don't think these protests are. I just have to wonder whether sort of the, we've, we've seen the peak of, uh, of these entrenched protests against this pipeline and I, I because again a lot of people now may have criminal records paying th- lots of money in fines and serving jail time and there's nothing to show for it yeah i'm struck by the change in tone in burnaby i mean i, I used to cover that stuff when i was down uh, working for cknw and i remember even uh city workers were were joining in the protest and standing in front of trees are about to be cut down that kind of thing we're all aware where Derek corgan stands on this thing uh but an interesting change of tone there vaughn yes and and i uh but it was pretty disturbing that the RCMP threatened to arrest yeah. the reporter from Global TV, Paul Hasem, and the camera operator from Global TV for trying to cover this thing. I don't see why they had to do that, and I don't think it's a wise policy for the RCMP. The media being there, filming what's happening is a check on the protesters making extreme claims about how they were dealt with. I I just thought that was outrageous that the RCMP threatening to throw a reporter in jail for covering a story in public. I, I, I'd like to see more comment from the federal politicians in charge of the RCMP that this is not how things should be done in, in a country as open as this one. Yeah, I totally agree. I have to wonder what the uh, officer involved there was thinking. Uh, we've only got a few minutes left. I want to jam this in right here at the end. You guys have had a ring show seat to uh, uh, this statue controversy involving uh, our first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald. Uh, Vaughn, you uh, you kind of treated council with baby gloves. I thought you could have been a little harder on them with your column <laughs> recently. Called them 
week. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but like, uh, but what, in the, what in the hell is going on down there? You have seen politicians running for cover on this thing, and, and I think there's a recognition now that they went about this in a very, very bad way. Head Council announced that uh, they were going to consider relocating the statue from the entranceway to City Hall to... Uh, the Provincial Museum or some other location, I think there would have been some public debate in the Capitol. People would have had time to react and consider the thing. But that's not what they did. They announced they were, the mayor announced the statue was out on a Tuesday. Council voted to get rid of it on Thursday. And on Saturday morning at 5 a.m., they put up a screen in the, in the dark of night and removed the statue. And no wonder the community is shocked and appalled at that way of handling a statue of who someone who is after all the father of this country whatever you think of what he did uh so i you know and there's been some comment from the city and one of the councillors is now saying oh well you know we could have done it better they sure could have done it better and and instead of reconciling the community with first nations they divided the community and divided it badly, and some of the people who did it may pay a political consequence in the election in October. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bothered by the sort of revisionist censorship of that particular move. Final word to you, Keith. Yeah, this is, uh, we have a very flaky council in Victoria. Uh, we have a low voter turnout, and so you get these mushy, politically correct, lefty councillors elected. This was uh, badly handled. The mayor um, all went into office, his reputation is a bit flaky, and she just enhanced that. Lisa helps. This secretive uh, move to get rid of the council with no public debate, and, they, and suddenly the emergence of what's called the city family, which nobody even knew existed, which was uh, a couple of councillors and some fr- a couple of First Nations leaders arbitrarily took it upon themselves to say, no, we're not going to have a public debate because that would be too... That might be too controversial. We're going to get rid of this ca- this uh, statue on its own. And, and as Vaughn says, rather than uh, lead to reconciliation, it simply flam it simply inflamed the divide between First Nations and uh, and non First Nations. It's just uh, horribly handled. Uh, removing statues and revising history is always a very sensitive topic, and I think this one was completely botched and got Victoria a black eye internationally. All right, uh, gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Look forward to chatting next week. Take care, Shane. There we go. There's Keith Baldry from Global BC and Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. A quick break to get caught up on the news to the bottom of the hour here on Radio NL. On the other side, we'll talk salmon with BC Green Party MLA Adam Olson. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. Pleasure to be joined on the line by BC Green Party MLA, Adam Olson. Adam, welcome. Thank you for having me, Shane. And uh, I always seem to be following Vaughn and Keith, which is, uh, which is a daunting task, nonetheless. <laughs> I'm happy to do it. Yeah, well, try refereeing between the two of them sometime. <laughs> Uh, Adam, uh, last both sides of the floor, all sides of the floor. How yeah, about that? Yeah, that's yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, I forget. There's three sides now, isn't there? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, last uh, last June, uh, the province launched the Wild Salmon Advisory Council. Uh, I know that's an issue that's near and dear to your heart. Uh, the idea of this council is to develop a strategy for restoring and sustaining BC salmon populations. You're going to report back to the premier by summer's end. Uh, we're uh, well into August now, which means yeah. uh, that deadline's looming. So, uh, first and foremost, how's that work going? 
I, it's going, uh, it, it's moving along. We uh, have got meetings. Actually, uh, your, your timing is impeccable, uh, Shane. Uh, we've got meetings uh, again next week. So we met uh, for uh, a single day in uh, maybe the last month, July, uh, in Vancouver. And uh, we're now coming together for two days of meetings uh, in, in Victoria, in and around the legislature, where we will be reviewing uh, a number of uh, fairly high level at this stage uh, reports uh, that have been drafted by uh, a handful of consultants, and uh, and we will begin putting together an options paper to put uh, in front of another, um, well, a select standing committee uh, as the legislature works. Uh, there's these select standing committees, and this one is for agriculture. And uh, so the process is moving in the right direction. All right, perfect. Uh I know that uh, Steelhead's not alone in this, but uh, the Steelhead run in this part of the world is, is and I, I don't, I'm not understating it in any way, shape, or form, is really teetering on the brink of extinction. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you this week is we had a story earlier on here on NL uh, Monday, Tuesday this week about uh, the TNRD director for Spence's Bridge. Now, that town is known for its fishing. It kind of relies on that, big part of its local economy. There's some worries there that if the Steelhead run is, is, is kind of, there's a moratorium or whatever happens with it, uh, that it could really turn that town into a ghost town and it struck me that this speaks to the hard decisions that might be to come as you guys deal with this thing your thoughts yeah i mean i I guess the situation that we're faced uh presents us uh both with i think the the kind of the solemn feelings that we have but then as well the the reality that one way or another right i guess is something that i could say is if if we continue to think that we can have the relationship with uh with salmon or with uh um, steelhead that we've had always in the past, uh, thinking back to the glory days, uh, and then, um, then in one way or another, these these uh, these species are, as you said, teetering on the brink of extinction, and uh, and we ha- we do have very hard decisions to make. I know that one of the things that the Wild Salmon Advisory Council is constantly grappling with is, you know, we've got one fish. How do we split it between the the six different interest groups that have that all want a piece of it, right? So. Uh, one of the things, one of the decisions that we have to make and that we have to start talking about on the conservation side is the sacrifices that we're going to have to make and how we as a, as a provincial government work with uh, the communities that have relied on these industries uh, in the past to ensure that we uh, dull the, uh, uh, the impact that this is going to have. I mean, clearly we've, uh, to a certain extent, managed these uh, the, along with the federal government, manage these uh, species to near extinction, and um, it's, it's it's likely to hurt one way or another. So we have to we have to be responsible as 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 in in governance to have those conversations honestly with people and not pretend like it's anything different than what the reality actually is. As you approach this task, and you guys are about to whatever you table at the end of this process. Uh, how how much does it add to the complexity, not only the sharing of uh, responsibility for the salmon within different provincial government ministries, but also within different layers of government and, and different federal ministries as well? I, I've always been struck by this overlapping jurisdiction issue, which kind of seems to mess things up. And then you add in the First Nations component. Yeah, so, I mean, th- that's, a, that's a piece of it. Uh, my community, I'm from the uh, uh, Nation in... in uh, and the Saanich Nation here in uh, in southern Vancouver Island, and uh, we just got our first food and ceremonial fish in five years because we've made that tough decision as a as a community. It was a particularly strong sockeye run, 
so, you know, I look at the, the number of this year's sockeye run, and we've been in conservation mode the years past. I look at uh, the, the n- numerous layers of government that are involved in the decision-making, and the fragmentation is one of the reasons why I think we're in the situation that we're in right now, that when governments have the ability to point the fingers and say, well, it's actually them, or it's them, or look over there, or don't look at me, look at somebody else, that's where we really start to see the breakdown and, and what, is ha- what needs to happen on the ground not happen on the ground. And so one of the things that we know for sure is that the provincial government is 100% responsible for things like agriculture and things like forestry practices, um, how communities are built and developed, the riparian, the protection of riparian areas, the, the management and um, revitalization of watersheds. These are not just important for, the, for the, the, the salmon values that are there. These are important for healthy, resilient, strong, sustainable communities. These are good investments to be making for many, many reasons. And so what I'd say is that uh, we, have to, we have to be very crystal clear on what we can do as a provincial government, how we work with our uh, partners at the municipal government level, and then be building a very strong advocacy voice Uh, and becoming much more powerful at the table with the federal government and demanding that they look after their business. Because this, uh, you know, as a salmon or as a a steelhead leaves its spawning grounds and heads out, it passes through numerous jurisdictions with many, many interested parties uh, along the way that that is just one part of uh, a, a vast array of challenges that it will face. And not including, but not limited to, the growing challenge with climate change. I mean, this is yeah. one of the issues that I think we're going to have to address head-on uh, in the Wild Salmon Advisory Council, is that there's just some things that are going to impact no matter what we do in the watershed. Uh, you know, the Fraser River is heating up. And, yeah. uh, and you know, when the fish get to hope, it's, it's, it's pretty tough up there for them. So Yeah. Uh, I've just got a couple more minutes with you here, Adam. Uh, I want to touch, touch on a couple other things. Uh, I know you're going to be here in Kamloops uh, next weekend, I believe. Uh, how come? What's going on? Yeah, so uh just want to make sure I have the details. We're coming up to do, uh, I'm coming up to, we're, we're on tour, basically. Uh, Sonia and, and Andrew and I are touring around the province. I am going to be uh, in Kamloops next, uh, next weekend, next Saturday uh, uh, August the 25th, we're hosting a public forum uh, from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. at the Sandman Signature Kamloops Hotel on Lawrence Street. And anybody who lives in Kamloops probably knows where that is much better than I do. And then as well, I will be there the next, the following day to participate and celebrate uh, the wonderful diversity of, uh, of Kamloops and of our province uh, at the Pride Parade. So uh, I'll be there all weekend. And uh, it's the very end of a uh, of a tour, which will see me in four different communities in four days. And then I get to go on holiday with my family. So <laughs> I look forward to, I, I, we were up there earlier this summer for our convention and I look forward to capping, uh, bookending the summer with a visit to, uh, to Kamloops to, to do a public forum. I, I certainly hope that people will, uh, come out and hang out with us and have us hang out with me and have a conversation. Uh, you can find out the details on, uh, bcgreens.ca. And then as well, I really look forward to uh, joining, uh, what is it, Kamloopians? Kamloopsians? Kamloopsians, yeah. Kamloopsians <laughs> in the uh, Pride Parade celebrating the diversity of your beautiful city. All right, sounds good. I only got about 30 seconds left, but really quickly, what's, what's the point of the tour? Are you just trying to get a gauge of public opinion on some things? or? Uh, 
Um, yeah, look, we, we've, we uh, recognize that uh, we have to, we've got three seats and they're all within a, about a 50 kilometer geographic radius of, of one another. We, that's not lost on us and it's important for us to be uh, doing what we can to be uh, broadening our scope and broadening our reach and having conversations with British Columbians all across the province. It's an important thing. As Sonia's been uh, up, uh, she's been up north recently. It's important that we are uh, seeing, feeling, tasting um, uh, life across British Columbia. And as we, you know, are dealing with uh, things like wildfires and things, we, we cannot be just locked into southern Vancouver Island and think that's good enough. It's not good enough. And so this is part of um, getting to, to be around the province and understanding uh, the, the complexity and the diversity in our, uh, in our province. Sounds good. Uh, and I can hear all the squawking behind you, but I guess working in the legislature makes you used to that. So. Seagull. <laughs> Adam, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. We'll see you in Kamloops soon. I'll, I'll let your listeners uh, confirm from that what they, what they wish. Yeah. It's <laughs> all around me right now. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me this morning. All right. Good to talk to you. There's uh, BC Green Party MLA Adam Olson. We'll take a quick break here on Inside Politics on Radio NL. On the other side, we'll turn our attention to the wildfire front with Forest Minister Doug Donaldson. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning and welcome back to Inside Politics. Uh, the hope was, the goal was to have uh, Forest Minister Doug Donaldson on with us live. As you can imagine, with the wildfire situation spiraling out of control, his schedule is uh, very up in the air. Uh, last minute change. He did call in and uh, chat with our Angelo Iacobucci while I was uh, talking to Keith and Vaughn a little earlier. So we're going to go to Forest Minister Doug Donaldson uh, for a bit of a chat about wildfires and other topics right now. Well, uh, I've been to uh, Burns Lake and the Shovel Lake Fire a couple of times in the last two weeks, uh, and I was just up in Telegraph Creek in the northwest uh, this week as well. But uh, given the circumstances of the aggressive behavior of the fires and the and the warnings that are out there, I thought it would be uh, important to uh, to touch base again in person and make sure that people know that uh, we have uh, their backs and uh, that uh, we're pulling out all the stops on these fires. Uh, and so I'll be jumping on a plane here in a few minutes and uh, flying over to uh, Burns Lake from Smithers. Now, you've been up there twice, you've mentioned. How bad is the situation? Describe it for our listeners uh, in, in Kamloops, Doug. Well, wildfires are wildfires, and uh, when they have the fuel and the wind and the dry conditions, uh, they can uh, move rapidly and uh, burn large areas. And in this case, uh, when I first visited the Shovel Lake Fire, I think it was uh, it was about 900 hectares, and and now it's uh, uh, approaching 68,000 hectares. So it's really uh, it's uh, it's the topography, it's the wind, and um, this is why uh, we recommend to local government uh, and the local government puts evacuation alerts and orders in, and uh, just uh, don't you want to make sure that people when they hear there's an order that they obey it because this fire behavior uh, huge clouds up to eighteen thousand feet and uh, and really moves rapidly to, on the ground. Doug, are you calling in any extra resources, either another request from the federal government or putting it out to the U.S., New Zealand, Australia, Mexico, that usually help us? We have uh, a large number of resources on the fire uh, in the Babine complex in that area of the province. There's uh, over uh, 350, 400 uh, firefighters uh, from internationally and, and from uh, other provinces and, and our own as well, and contractors too. 
Uh, we'll assess that. Uh, that's up to the operations uh, managers, the great expertise we have, uh, and I'll be talking to them today. And if they uh, are needing further resources, we'll reach out to uh, the Canadian Fire Centre in Winnipeg where they coordinate uh, requests to other provinces and then, uh, if need be, federally as well. Doug, this is the fourth worst wildfire season on record so far and has had a shot at moving into third place. Thoughts on that? Well, uh, it sure would be nice to see some rain. Uh, that's one of my thoughts. Uh, we've got an outstanding crews, and uh, they get fatigued, and then they go through rotation periods, and uh, we enforce uh, three days off before they go into the next 14-day uh, rotation. But uh, these are kind of things that uh, that we're going to look at uh, once we get these fires under control and deal with immediate needs and keep people safe. Uh, you know, we've implemented some new measures this year, uh, and uh, we'll be looking at implementing new measures as far as protecting communities before fire season starts and and as far as our uh, our response uh, level and capacity as well. Well, we can thank Shane for this next question. He did a bit of research, but apparently, Doug, four of the 11 worst fire seasons B.C. has had since 1950 have, in fact, taken place in the last uh, five years. Is it global warming, too much you know, greenhouse gases, what, what is causing this? Is there any science out there that you can sort of say, this is the reason why? Well, certainly the uh, forest ecologists, uh, those deal with uh, forest health uh, issues in the province, uh, uh, point to a changing climate uh, when we see increased infestation of the mountain pine beetle, for instance. And uh, in this case, that's a lot of the uh, fuel that's on the forest floor and standing dead timber in the fires that I'm going to visit today are from infestations like that. And we have spruce beetle and uh, other uh, pests that uh, that are definitely part of the, the ecosystem when it gets drier and warmer. We also have storm events that are more uh, severe when it comes to thunder and lightning, and, and we have um, changes in precipitation patterns. So all those together uh, can be attributed to um, uh, global warming. And so it's incumbent upon us to uh, make uh, changes in how we fight fires and how we prepare to fight fires. And that's what we're that's what we're doing. That's what I was going to ask you. The next question, Doug, obviously man is puny compared to Mother Nature. I don't think there's much man can do to influence Mother Nature perhaps in the long run, but what needs to change to prepare for what is now appearing to become the new norm every summer? Well, you're right about the puny part. I mean, these these are called wildfires for a reason, and when they get to a certain size, uh, they can even create their own weather patterns. So, you know, our number one priority is to protect uh, the public and protect our crews when they get to that kind of size, and we want to minimize structural damage, and um, and those are the the top two priorities. So, what we can do is is look at um, protections around communities, and we have a new program uh, coming in place. We're just in the final stages of putting it together with uh, consultation with the Union of BC Municipalities and the First Nations uh, Emergency Services Society. And that will allow uh, municipalities and and communities and villages to have a lot more resources to harvest uh, fuel around their communities and within their communities. And also, uh, you know, um, we'll be able to do things through our Staff, our expert staff uh, within the BC Wildfire Service, like increasing uh, prescribed burns. So, you know, when fires do uh, get uh, out of control, they won't have the fuel close to communities uh, to burn up and 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 go into communities. 
Doug, uh, in terms of that, uh, how much money are you intending to put into this new program? We have $50 million uh, slotted over the next three years for uh, that community resilience program, and uh, and we've been able to uh, secure funding uh, jointly uh, between uh, our resources here and the, and the federal government. Uh, so uh, for, for another uh, pot of funds uh, that will be able to be uh, allocated over the next three years as well. So some significant dollars, but I, uh, you know, from my perspective, it's well worth it uh, when you look at the amount of money that it costs to fight fires in the last few years, uh, you know, the prevention part is, is always uh, money well spent. Canada's forest industry, Doug, is pushing back against comments by President Trump, apparently that lumber imports are partially to blame for intense fires in California. Now, according to Mr. Trump, the U.S. should extract more lumber from the forest floor to both supply the lumber industry and reduce forest fire threats. So what do you think about those comments from the U.S. president? Uh, well, oftentimes I find it difficult to follow the logic of the uh, President of the United States, uh, especially in his tweets. But, uh, no, there's no validity to those kind of comments uh, as, as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, you know, the, the California situation is a tragic situation, but it has uh, zero uh, relevance to uh, our lumber imports. You, you mentioned earlier that, that you had the $50 million in the resiliency fund and then you were going to add to that pot of money. How much money are you going to add to that pot of money to help communities deal with this? Well, we, uh, through uh, an agency we created, which is uh, Forest Enhancement Society of BC, uh, we uh, put $140 million, uh, or at least $150 million into that agency uh, for expenditures in the next three years, and we were able to get uh, matching funds, uh, close to matching $140 million from the um, federal government. So we have $290 million in that, uh, in that agency and that fund uh, in order to address uh, what we call uh, our forest carbon initiative. So it's uh, being able to go into the forest and clean up uh, forests uh, that uh, have been damaged and uh, and clean up fuels and, and replant. So uh, that's another $290 million over the next uh, three to four years. So the program that you're going to announce this fall will be a new program with how much money in it? Uh, there's the $50 million for the uh, Community Resilience Program, uh, and that'll be directly for municipalities. Uh, and villages and First Nations communities, and then there'll be uh, our expenditures through the uh, Forest Carbon Initiative, which is a uh, will be through our team in the ministry and uh, and contractors of uh, two hundred and ninety million dollars. There we go. Uh, my thanks, to Angela Yakabuchi, for pinch hitting with Forest Minister Doug Donaldson, uh, who has a bit of an interesting schedule today due to the uh, wildfire activity. Uh, my thanks to my guests today, not only Doug Donaldson, but also Adam Olson from the Green Party and Keith Paltry and Vaughn Palmer. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL's Inside Politics next Friday. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com.